This is Winter is Here, a podcast where we discuss how we arrived at the global battle between tyranny and democracy, and more importantly, how we can win. I'm your host, Yuri Lepshtin, Executive Director of the Renew Democracy Initiative, and I'm joined today by New York Times columnist Brett Stevens. Brett won a Pulitzer Prize for commentary at the Wall Street Journal in 2013, was previously editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post, and is known for his sharp, contrarian takes, which, having known him now for a few years, I can attest to. So welcome, Brett. Thanks for joining. It's nice to be with you. Let's start with your most recent piece in The Times about your optimism for America. You know, I think it's safe to say that a podcast titled Winter is Here won't usually be known for its optimism. So I'm excited to inject some. What makes you optimistic about the U.S. and its role in the world? I think the United States has a set of deep resources that our adversaries lack. I think these resources are inscribed into both our legal and civic character. I'm aware that legal and civic character changes over time, but I'm also aware that every time that Americans have been tested in the ways we are being tested now, whether it was in the 1970s, another period of profound American self-doubt, and social upheaval and economic stagnation, or the 1930s, very similar, or the 1850s, choose your decade, we have been able to overcome what seem to be insurmountable challenges. And one reason for that is that while dictatorships are very good at advertising their strengths and hiding their weaknesses, including hiding those weaknesses to themselves, Democracies tend to advertise their weaknesses and forget that they even have strengths. And so there's a kind of paradox of pessimism, which is to say that as we obsess about our problems, which are real, which are serious, we try to fix them. We adapt to them. We acknowledge them. We contend. And so there's a kind of flexibility Imagine the roots of a tree finding their way around rocks and boulders underground that democracies and American democracy in particular has always enjoyed, whereas dictatorships tend to be brittle. They are static and then they shatter. And I think that this is a kind of a deep advantage that we have over our enemies. So despite the fact that, you know, my last column, I took stock some very serious problems socially, economically, culturally, and so on, history offers a pretty good sense that the American experiment is nowhere near its end. You point out the importance of self-reflection here, which is definitely an advantage that democracies have over dictatorships. We're seeing it right now in Ukraine, where Putin apparently managed to convince himself that he had this invincible army, when in fact, you know, it was an utter Potomkin village. But Obviously, there's a real danger when self-reflection becomes self-flagellation, which is another thing you've highlighted in some of your pieces. And just to read back one quote that I found to be pretty compelling was that myths have a way of making history and that fortune tends to favor fervent believers. When we're at a point where we're really highlighting our weaknesses, we lose some of that belief, right? We're not really fervent believers. So how can we maintain the positives of self-reflection without allowing ourselves to 
fall to self-flagellation. I'm glad you bring this up because it is an apparent contradiction between these two columns, one of them written in a spirit of intense pessimism and the other written in a spirit of modulated, qualified optimism, I guess, depending on which side of the bed I got up on on any given morning. But let me try to square that circle. A couple points. For all of our self-doubt, one of the things that the war in Ukraine has brought out is that our belief in the inherent goodness of open societies turned out to be much more powerful than I think many of us expected. And I think of this just driving in all kinds of places where I'm seeing a lot of blue and yellow flags, a deep feeling that there is a requirement for solidarity and support for another embattled democracy on the other side of the world, a country that Let's face it, six months ago, we didn't really think much about, if at all. And so Americans almost have an innate sense of fair play and the importance of standing up for free countries threatened by autocratic or totalitarian rule. So we are, in fact, more fervent believers in we have a deeper conviction of our democratic belief than I think even we realized ourselves. So I just think that the inner resources and the inner belief that was hidden even from us, the point I made in my more recent column, remains there. One of the things that I also find interesting in some of the analysis of Putin's May 9th Victory Day speech, you know, he didn't call up conscripts. He understands that while there is superficial support for his so-called special operation in Ukraine, bolstered by a great deal of censorship, repression, and state propaganda, that that support is in fact fairly thin, fairly brittle, could easily break, and that the sacrifices he can ask of the Russian people are relatively slight. So maybe the fervent belief remains on the side in this case at least, remains on the side of the democracies. The thing that's interesting to me here is you suddenly have democracies, free people, being reminded of the importance of their freedom when it's threatened, right? It's the classic right. example. You don't, you don't value something until it's gone or threatened. And so in the 1990s, 91, you know, the Soviet Union falls. We have this decade of hope, of almost unbridled hope. It's the end of history. It's where we no longer have to think about the battle between uh, tyranny and democracy, and we can focus on boring old economics. But it's that that in part led to, I think, people feeling lost, right? Where you no longer have this single unifying enemy, the single unifying thing that you're fighting against. And therefore, suddenly all the other problems that you're facing become very real and very important. And there's always going to be those problems, right? There's always going to be drugs. There's always going to be scarcity. Some people are going to be doing better than others. So there's going to be inequality. Those things are never going to go away. And they could become a lot more kind of determinative if there's nothing else kind of uniting people. So I guess the question is, is there a way for democracies to remain united, to remain hopeful without some type of existential threat or external enemy? So it's a great question, and it's absolutely true that when someone like Frank Fukuyama announced that history was over, 
and that our fundamental problems were essentially the problems of spreading the gospel of democracy and capitalism to every corner of the world, that there was a quality of inevitability to the not only survival but triumph of the free world, that we lost a sense of why the free world mattered. We lost the sense of why its values were not necessarily self-perpetuating. We lost the notion that there might still be serious, not just strategic, but ideological and intellectual challenges to the free world. And we lost a considerable amount of self-belief. Going back to your earlier question, wallowing in self-criticism, some of it valid, some of it ill-founded or excessive. And so it does turn out that having a common enemy, whether it was the Soviet Union during the Cold War or the fascist powers before then, helps give people a sense of what is at stake. But I would say this too. Back in the early 1990s, there was a ferocious battle at Stanford University over whether to continue Western SIF. When I was coming of age in the 1980s, it was still standard that young people took at least survey courses in Western civilization, had a sense of what that civilization stood for and why it was worth defending. And that kind of, it did just evaporate in the 1990s and after that. It almost turned on itself, kind of a quality of self-loathing that everything associated with Western civilization was foul, a product of white supremacy, racism, colonialism, and so on. And so there was a kind of a giant pedagogical failure, above all at the universities, but also in high schools. And even, you know, now that I'm raising some kids and watching them go through their own education, even at more elementary school, middle school levels. And if you teach people to not just neglect their culture, but actively to despise it, you're going to run into problems. And we have run into problems. Now, for my earlier answer, I'm happy to say that turns out, despite all of this, despite 25 years of nonstop miseducation, people still value democracy, freedom, civil rights, and human rights, which are the bedrock products of free societies, and you might say of Western civilization as well, although it's not exclusively Western civilization. But could we have done better pedagogically? Could deans and university presidents and high school principals not had such a loss of focus and a loss of nerve. I think that was an opportunity that we squandered culturally. One of the strange things about the Trump presidency is that it has at least awakened the left to the need to do things like revere the Constitution, revere the idea that truth matters and that truth is not just a matter of one person's narrative versus another person's narrative. Revere the idea that not everything is relative, but there are objective differences between different types of regimes. All of that was kind of absent in the pre-Trump era, certainly in academia. And one of the paradoxes of the Trump administration is that suddenly the same people who might have previously told you, a la Michel Foucault, that what determines truth is power, have suddenly discovered that it ought not to be that way, and that truth ought to stand independently 
of questions of power. So right now we have Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which is uniting people. It's giving us, I think, a sense that, as you pointed out, for a long time we've been missing. But in the absence of that, right, so let's say a few years from now, we have a relatively short memory. I think, quite frankly, it'll be much less than a few years. But in a few years, you know, people will move on, right? In the West, certainly, America, we will move on. And so in the absence of that sort of external unifying force, it sounds like what you're suggesting is that there needs to be a significant element of positive messaging domestically. So in addition to the self-reflection and the highlighting of faults that democracies are so damn good at, there also needs to be an element of highlighting what's good and, and highlighting what separates freedom, free countries from those that are unfree and why objectively speaking, those free countries or freedom in and of itself as a principle, as a value, is better than its opposite. Correct. Although, as you asked the question, I have to say it's a necessary but not sufficient condition. You know, the other problem that we've had in the democratic world is that certainly in the last 25 years, and I tried to underscore some of this in my latest column, democracies, liberal democracies, have not been working that well. A democracy also has to deliver. It has to deliver political outcomes that are palatable and not the kind of ultra-divisive ones that we've had, whether it's in France between a Macron and a Le Pen or in the United States between a Trump and a Joe Biden or a Hillary Clinton. It has to deliver economic growth and not just economic growth, but economic growth that is properly distributed. It has to deliver certain kinds of other baseline efficiencies in terms of regulatory agencies, taxation, the, the, the structure of rules, torts, that kind of thing. And none of that, let's be honest, has been working all that well in the United States. You know, I think in the last 30 years, the burden of regulation, if you are an entrepreneur in the United States, has grown exponentially. The threat of litigation has grown exponentially. The quality of the workforce in many industries has diminished. The ability and the willingness of people to work and to work hard and work well. I speak to business persons who just cannot find qualified labor. The quality of our schooling, certainly public schooling, but also universities, that's diminished too, not producing young people capable of mastering the skills of a knowledge-based economy. So it's having a common enemy helps. Having a pedagogy is of freedom is extraordinarily important. And showing that you can deliver and showing that you can meet needs and showing that democracy isn't just an ideal to be admired, but a practice that yields tangible benefits, I think that's the third component needed to give democracy not only an edge over its adversaries, but a chance to survive its own inner turmoils and doubts. So this problem that democracy hasn't been able to deliver, that we're not actually giving people the real life impacts that would help them, that would improve their day-to-day -day experience on this earth, you know, it's a consequence, I think, of the fact that grandstanding has become much more 
of a priority for politicians than actual policymaking. That compromise is not something right now that is incentivized in our politics, right? If you compromise and you try to actually get something done, far from being rewarded at the ballot box, most likely you're going to be kicked out. So I think this is a problem that's been discussed ad nauseum. But what I'd like to do is, is try to take it one step further and think, well, what can we do? What do you think are shifts that we can make, whether it's in the way we think about our political system, in our structures, or something else that might change these incentives and actually get our political leaders to focus on governing rather than their next appearance on Fox or MSNBC? So one of the realities that takes people a while to discover is that there is, in fact, what Richard Nixon many years ago called a silent majority and which sociologists today call it an exhausted majority. And this goes to a landmark report from a group called More in Common that appeared three or four years ago showing that the fringes of American politics, the, I don't know, 7 to 9% of Americans who call themselves ultra-conservative and a roughly similar percentage who call themselves ultra-progressive and who dominate social media, who are the loudest and most prominent voices on some of the cable TV networks, actually don't represent us. They are every bit as distasteful to the majority of Americans as they seem, except that while they are a small minority, those of us who are forced to listen to them and endure them feel like we're the minority. And there has not yet been, to the best of my knowledge, real efforts to break through and to appeal to people who are sick of the algorithms of outrage, the algorithm of outrage that is Twitter, the algorithm of outrage that is MSNBC on one side or Fox News on the other, the algorithm of outrage that is talk radio, you can go down the list. I think there are opportunities, intriguing opportunities, for people to model and showcase different ways of collaborating and speaking with one another. And I'll just give you a personal example. For the last few years, Gail Collins, my wonderful, delightful, left-of-center colleague at the New York Times, liberal colleague, and I have had a weekly colloquy, which we call The Conversation. It is wildly popular with readers of the New York Times. It's one of the most popular features in the paper, I think. And time and again, people will come to me and say, I don't always agree with you, but I love the civility of the tone. I love the humor. I love the fact that the two of you obviously like each other. I just like the fact that you can talk to each other without trying to humiliate or own or put down the other person. Now, if you look for the conversation on social media, it's basically nowhere. Social media doesn't know what to do with two people having a respectful, humorous conversation that entails areas of agreement and areas of disagreement. But there's obviously, obviously a massive appetite for the kind of thing that we're doing. Now, this is not a promo for the conversation that you just find, but it raises the question in my mind, 
if this is succeeding while nobody's noticing, couldn't we do similar things? I think of something like IQ Intelligence Squared, the debate group. Debate is a fantastic way of modeling both ideological difference as well as an ability to talk at or to or with one another rather than against others or over the heads of others or around others. Why don't we have, on a national basis, more media that contains the element of genuine debate rather than a never-ceasing consonance of views in utterly separated silos? So I think the opportunity is there. And if you can start to model that kind of thing, it might have a chance of bettering our politics. The other aspect, though, is a hardware question, which is that we now have a politics in which gerrymandered districts and a process in which people sort themselves out ideologically and politically in certain geographic areas has accentuated a really toxic form of politics. And I wish I had a silver bullet cure for that. I mean, it would be great if we could move beyond the partisan gerrymander, but the Supreme Court has ruled against that. But in some ways, our politics have to rise above the total dysfunction that we have now. The only thing that gives me hope, Uriel, is that we've seen periods of this in the past when it was even worse. And we somehow overcame it. Hmm. So we should be thinking about how we can do so again. I like that. I like thinking about that as software and hardware. It's funny, the software point in terms of having these thoughtful discussions, these meaningful disagreements, and your focus on debate, it brings back my own memories of high school debate, which I participated in. I was very competitive once upon a time. And I remember thinking... So at the time, this it didn't even cross my mind that this was an issue. But when we were doing debate in high school, what was rewarded was aggression. What was rewarded was humiliating your opponent, right? Like making them appear to be foolish, catching them in a trap, et cetera, which for a kid was an exhilarating experience, right? It was perhaps, you know, one of the first experiences of power that a nerdy high school kid is going to get. But what I didn't think about at the time was the extent to which that sets a bad precedent, right? Like this idea of what the goal of debate is to beat the other team, beat the other person, and in so doing, score the most points, you know, get the speaker's gavel, whatever it is. You know, so I think there's an element here where we actually have to rethink how we do these debates, right? How we do these conversations and rethink the things that we reward. But on the hardware side, the thing that comes to mind for me is a study out of Yale, actually, that came out a few years ago. And I hope despite your feelings about Yale, you'll still consider the outcome of the study. But what it showed was a really depressing statistic, which was that if someone of either party were to do something anti-democratic, their co-partisans, meaning if it's a Democrat, then other Democrats, and if it's a Republican, then other Republicans, would only punish them approximately on average 3% of the time. Now, the scariest part of that statistic is that it actually roughly remained true even in the primary, right? When the alternative to your preferred candidate isn't someone of the opposite party, but merely someone different from your own party. And 
you know, when I think about that study, that kept me up at night and really worries me about the extent to which our politics have become tribal rather than issue or policy based. Yeah, maybe. And it is a worrying thing. My question is, would that have been less true in 1967 or even in 1987? You know, I remember the 1980s very vividly when I was sort of my political coming of age and the rage of the left against the Reagan administration was incandescent, right? Mm. Now we look back on it as a halcyon period of renewed American prosperity, triumph in the Cold War, a president who was a unifying figure and won 49 or 48 state majorities in two consecutive elections. So my only qualification is, well, perhaps it's ever been thus, that there isn't a marked change in the way, I mean, what you're describing isn't um, modern behavior in a decaying democracy, you're just describing human nature in any democracy. I don't know the answer, but it's good to raise that. I would say something about, you know, what you were describing in terms of your debate. It's true, debate by its very nature, competitive, as it should be, by the way, as it should be. There's nothing wrong with a good, hard argument. What I do with Gail, we call the conversation, and it's a little bit like a game of tennis where the only purpose is to keep the ball in the air. It doesn't matter if it falls you know, exactly within the lines or not. The object is the pleasure itself of batting words and ideas back and forth. But tennis is also fine when it is competitive and within a set of rules because it's showcasing to a public the possibility of high-level and intelligent disagreement in which one side isn't excluded simply because it has been deemed beyond the moral pale or because a group of people don't want to listen to it. On the contrary, they do want to listen to it not necessarily to agree with it, but simply to watch it get destroyed. And sometimes it doesn't get destroyed and people are persuaded. That is a healthier model of discourse than what we have now, which is people hop on panel at MSNBC and they try to outbid one another in the fervor of their mutual agreement and detestation of the other side. The same thing happens on Fox. And there's not a good reason why we can't do this again. You know, Sean Hannity, in an ancient incarnation, actually had a liberal opponent, the late, much-missed Alan Colmes. Fox decided to get rid of that, but that was a choice that Fox made, and it's a choice it can reverse, in theory. (laughs) In theory. someone can reverse. (laughs) I like that idea. Competition of ideas, I think, is absolutely critical. Of course, it depends what it is that we're rewarding right, in that conversation? Are we rewarding the act of sort of a hard-hitting disagreement over policy, or are we rewarding the act of a rhetorical tongue lashing? It doesn't matter because at the minimum, it exposes the public, whether it's the judges of a debate or the public in the Lincoln-Douglas debates of 1858, to the idea that there are ideas on the other side and they have to be contended with in a serious way. And it takes a skilled thinker and rhetorician to contend with the ideas of your opponent because those ideas are more meritorious or at least more solidly founded than you might think if you only heard your own side. And now it's a bit of an uphill struggle. It's a bit of an uphill struggle to be the only, not the only, but 
in the minority of views at a newspaper like mine. I'm glad I'm doing it, and I think it's important, but it's hard to do. I do think, however, that there is genuine pleasure in the contest of ideas, and we are, for no particularly good reason, depriving ourselves of that, and in the process, depriving democracy of its most valuable set of insights. So let's take a step back. This podcast is all about the global battle between tyranny and democracy, right? And trying to get folks to care about that battle. Because one of the concerns that I have is that a lot of people don't necessarily feel like that struggle is important in their day-to-day lives, which is something I can understand, right? I mean, when you go to the supermarket and you see that your shopping list essentially has become 20% more expensive year over year, that's something you can really feel versus, you know, what's going on even now in Ukraine, which I think has mobilized a lot of people, at least for the time being, it still feels distant. And so there's a lot of people in the US, you know, both on the far left and on the far right, who've lost confidence in the liberal world order. How would you articulate a vision for an international system for that liberal world order that you think could appeal to those who generally believe that the US should focus inwards? So one of the reasons for the quasi-isolationist impulses, I think, of the last decade or so has been the sense that all of our entanglements abroad are essentially frivolous. That, you know, it would be nice if Iraq were a democracy or Afghanistan supported basic rights for women, but they don't, and we can shrug our shoulders because what does it mean to us, after all, right? That argument, I think, has become harder to sustain in the last year or so because it's dawned on us that the stakes are now much higher, that the threat is not distant and relatively trivial, but clear and present. And we've also been able to see in, in, I think, ways that are quite vivid that however flawed our democracies are, and Lord knows they're very flawed, consider the alternative. You know, I cannot get out of my head this image, as it's been described in various press accounts, that there are drones overflying Shanghai with loudspeakers flying up to the balconies of residents trapped in their apartments, hungry and lacking medicines they need and lacking human contact. And the drones are saying, suppress your soul's desire for freedom. That is the dystopian alternative that we're being offered in terms of the so-called rise of China. And again, I keep coming back to this word pedagogy. We need a pedagogy of freedom. We need more people to understand what the stakes are, what the alternatives are. America doesn't look so bad, even in higher crime, higher inflation, in this higher sclerosis era, when you say, well, this is the other side of things. So that's not even a question of an external threat. It's posing to the American public the idea that here what some of the alternatives look like. Alvaro Uribe, the former president of Colombia, stressed this point to me about how he was able in his own time to largely defeat, uh, although unfortunately not permanently defeat, the FARC, which at one point came very close to taking power in Colombia. 
And he kept using this word pedagogy. So, you know, I, I know people are enamored with these kinds of miracle cure structural fixes, changing voting systems, for instance, ranked choice voting was a big one about a year ago until we realized that suddenly it took a month to figure out who won the New York City Democratic primary. Or, you know, other sorts of, you know, packing the Supreme Court or expanding the number of people in the Supreme Court, term limits, these kinds of things. And maybe, I don't want to make the argument that there are no hardware fixes that we need to take. But I think that they are ultimately, first of all, they tend to come with unintended consequences that we rarely consider until we experience them. And secondly, they're just not as important as trying to transform the culture. And you transform the culture by what you teach and what you talk about and how you teach and how you talk about things. And so that's where I'm infatuated with the software piece of it more so than the hardware piece. One more point I might add, though. If you had to ask one question that determines whether free societies prosper or stagnate, That question would be whether the society views immigrants as assets or liabilities. Hmm. And so long as we're a country that views immigrants as assets, and now that's a real question, whether we will continue to do so. So long as we're a society that welcomes the hope, ambition, energy, and difference of the stranger, of the newcomer, we will be able to refresh the proverbial well in a way that societies that are close to the world, take Japan, for instance, or Hungary, have a much harder time doing. I am thinking back to your piece from maybe 2017, maybe even before, arguing in favor of deportation. Of course, it was in favor of deportation of Americans. So that was a tongue-in-cheek exercise. (laughs) Tucker Carlson being the cynical... Uh, character that he is chose to treat as a serious proposition. I was simply making the case that if you want to deport anyone on the basis of proneness to crime or failure to start new businesses or reluctance to have children, all of those things that go toward making healthy and prospering societies, you do better deporting the native born than deporting the newcomers. For the record, I'm not in favor of deporting the native-born or the newcomers. It was simply a thought exercise to clarify the value of immigration, which I can more or less tell who's an idiot by asking the question, do you understand the point I'm making or not? Yes. And to be fair, I think most of the listeners of this podcast would very much get your humor in having written the piece. And very briefly, I'll push back on the ranked choice voting piece here, which which I do think fundamentally, or if not fundamentally, at least incrementally improves incentives for politicians and for voters to try to seek more points of compromise, more points of agreement, rather than simply using attacks of demonization and rather on the voting side from voting purely strategically, where you can actually vote for folks with whom you agree. And you know, I'd say don't let the incompetence of New York discourage you from considering the system as a whole. Oh, you may be right. And I know some awfully smart people who think just the way you do. And, you know, I keep an open mind. I just am merely trying to make the point 
that miracle fixes tend to come with big hidden problems. And, you know, I think of when Israel tried to move toward a quasi-presidential system with direct election of the prime minister by the people. It was used, I think, once and turned into a, an epic disaster. But this was something that was advocated by all the smartest minds in the Jewish state. And it didn't quite work out as they had imagined. So I just offer it as a caution, not as a rejection of the proposal. Fair enough. The best laid plans of mice and men and all that. So one of the things that you touched upon here, and you know, this will kind of bring us, I think, to one of our final overarching points, was how politics is downstream of culture. I think that's something that, quite frankly, the fringes understand really well. I think the far right and the far left have really seized upon this idea of politics being downstream of culture, which is why they tend to focus on questions of culture rather than politics, whereas those of us who are in the center, which as you pointed out from the Hidden Tribes report from More Common, is the still the vast majority of the country, we focus a lot more on questions of policy and things that perhaps are less capable of capturing people's imagination. But, you know, if there's one person who over the course of the last two and a half months has managed to capture the imagination of pretty much the entire free world, it's the president of Ukraine, Vladimir Zelensky, who has just done an unbelievable job of conveying how the war that his country is facing, the invasion that they're countering, how it's not about borders and how it's not merely a conflict between two states, but that it's rather this broader conflict of authoritarianism versus freedom in a way that I think has really united and mobilized much of the free world. And then uh, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, a very famous Russian dissident and former oligarch, made the point that many politicians have become clowns, but at least one clown has become a hero. And Brett, you've met with and spoken with a lot of the key decision makers, stakeholders, leaders, you know, the world over, over the course of the last decade and a half or so. More than that, I'm afraid. I'm getting long in the tooth. More than that. What do you think sets Zelensky apart from Western political leaders? Why don't you think we see the types of characteristics that he embodies in more of our own leadership? Well, we might if we faced the kind of emergency that Ukraine is doing. We have a history of finding the leaders we need just at the moment in which we need them, whether it was this uh, tall, ugly fella who came out of nowhere in Illinois to lead us to victory in the Civil War, or other characters in history, I would argue a washed-up actor from Hollywood who improbably helped us win the Cold War, or in Great Britain, a has-been politician who had spent a decade in the wilderness who was instrumental in winning the Second World War. I mean, it's another reason why we should appreciate the deeper strengths of democracies, that they do find these people at the moment they need them, not always, not unfailingly, but they often do. But what I think Zelensky embodies is the character of democratic courage. That, I mean, to me, the line, I need ammunition, not a ride, will be remembered right up there with the... 9-11 passengers who said, let's roll and storm the plane and save the capital from destruction. It will be remembered with the 
American general in Bastogne who said nuts to Nazi demands of surrender. And that's a courage that comes not because he isn't afraid, but because there's a certain clarity of conscience that he and those fighting for Ukraine have that their Russian opponents don't. I think one of the reasons why Russia's advance has failed isn't simply poor generalship, although clearly there was a lot of that. It's poor motivation. It's a deep sense among at least those Russians involved in the war that what they're fighting for is not worth fighting for. They're just fighting for the sake of orders from above. And sometimes that's not worth giving their lives for. So I think that's what Zelensky has in addition to a profound understanding that great rhetoric, great words inspire great deeds. So his training as an actor, as an actor impersonating a president, in fact, just a few years ago, was exactly the right kind of training for the role that he is in. You know, Aristotle tells us that habituation is the road to virtue. If you want to be courageous, act like a courageous person. If you want to be wise, act like a wise person. And in a sense, the suggestion is that there is, in those mimetic attempts, it's how we learn to be our best selves. Maybe that's what Zelensky has. Maybe this moment really did need an actor who had played the parts that Zelensky has played on sound stages in order to play the part he is now playing on the world stage. So would you rather have a surgery done by an actor who played a doctor or an actor who played someone else? Well, good question. Um, <laughs> I don't, it's have, actually not, it's I'd, a terrible question, but. <laughs> well, yes, I'd rather have a, a surgery performed by an actor who played a surgeon because at least he would be able to say scalpel and clamp. But you're confusing two things, which I think is a common mistake in a lot of Western thinking, owing to the nature of platonic political thought, which is the idea that politics requires expertise no less than medicine. And I think that's just a mistake. There are clearly fields in which one asks for an expert. You don't take a vote on who's going to captain a plane. You get a captain with authoritarian command based on technical expertise to fly the damn plane. But a country is not a plane. A country requires an understanding of human, not mechanical facts. And that's very different. So it has been the case that we have found some of our best leadership, political leadership, from people who were not professional politicians. George Washington was not a professional politician. He was a soldier. And he became, I still think, perhaps our greatest president, not because of his political skills, but because of his leadership skills and his human understanding. Lincoln had been a congressman for one term, failed senatorial candidate, otherwise a very skilled lawyer. I guess it's true he had been in the Illinois State House, but certainly not a particularly skilled politician, but someone who was able to speak to the deep, deep human questions of his time with regard to freedom and slavery and union or disunion. So I reject the premise of your question, I guess is my answer. Well, good. On that note, 
I think we'll close the conversation here. Thank you, Brett, so much for joining us. And thank you all for listening to this episode of Winter is Here, brought to you by the Renew Democracy Initiative and Substack. I'm your host, Yuri Lepstein. At RDI, we are committed to pulling American democracy back from the brink and restoring its place as a global beacon for freedom. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player or at renewdemocracy.substack.com and share the episode with a friend. Or become an RDI subscriber at rdi.org. Thank you.